BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome to Forum. There are many things wrong with housing in California, but first and foremost among them is that the prices of all kinds of housing are just so, so, so high, even relative to similarly prosperous states. Among the reasons for that is a basic one. The production of housing, apartments and homes, has not kept pace with the number of jobs that companies have added to their roles. The imbalance has been a known problem for decades, but single-family homeowners, especially in rich areas, have benefited from restricting the housing supply, and that's made political change difficult. Things have gotten bad enough that legislation is finally starting to move through, and we'll discuss three new bills signed by Governor Newsom that could add hundreds of thousands of units in California over the coming years. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a set of housing bills last week that aimed to increase the state's housing inventory and meet his ambitious goals. In 2019, before the coronavirus pandemic, Newsom called for California to build roughly 500,000 new homes per year to reach three and a half million new housing units by 2025. That's a huge increase over the baseline, as California has on average added less than 100,000 units of housing per year for the past decade, according to CalMatters. Experts say some of the new housing bills, SB 8, 9, and 10, could usher in hundreds of thousands of new homes over time by making it easier to build more units on lots previously designated solely for single-family homes. But that's far from guaranteed. Some housing advocates aren't happy with the structure of the bills. Here to break down what's in the legislation, describe the evolving response to the intense housing shortage in the Bay Area and elsewhere, we have a great panel of experts, including the author of SB10, Scott Weiner, California State Senator representing San Francisco. Welcome. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by David Garcia, Policy Director at the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. Welcome, David. Hey, good morning. Thank you for having me. And we also have Hongwei Dong, a professor at California State University in Fresno in the Department of Geography and City and Regional Planning. Welcome. Hey, good morning. Excited to have the opportunity to talk about upzoning and housing. Great to have you here. Um, Senator Weiner, why don't you give us a quick rundown of what's in these bills and how you think they will change the housing landscape in California? Um, sure. And again, thank you for covering this. Um, so two of the bills, SB 9 and SB 10, are about zoning. Uh, and one of them, SB 9, um, overrides local single-family zoning 
um, to allow for duplexes and also for lot splits for lots that are large enough so you can split them and then do two build two uh, duplexes uh, and then SB 10 um, is a, a voluntary bill for cities but it allows cities to rezone land for up to 10 unit buildings uh, as long as it's not in the sprawl area and to do so in a very fast way without having to go through what could, a CEQA or environmental review process that could last years or even a decade and result in inevitable uh, lawsuits. Uh, so these two bills address zoning. And, and when you look at the millions of homes that we need, zoning is sort of is the foundational aspect. It's, it's sort of the math, if you will, about how many homes are legal uh, to build. And then the other bill, SB8, is more of a process bill. It's about how quickly we approve projects that are within zoning, uh, because sometimes you can zone for, say, a four-unit or 10-unit or 20-unit project, but if the city uh, rigs the process to make it take three, four, five, ten years to get the project approved, then it's really all for naught. So in combination, the, these bills don't solve the housing crisis. We have a lot more work to do, but they're a very solid step forward. So, you know, over there in the California State Senate, there has been a broader set of bills, the Building Opportunities for All Senate Housing Package, you know, a whole, whole bunch of stuff. Looks like uh, it's about a dozen bills, yeah. Um, were these the most important to get passed in this legislative session? Um, I think they were. There were there were some other good ones. There was another one, Senate Bill 6, which would have facilitated conversion of underperforming commercial property, you know, if you think about the dying strip mall, uh, into housing and mixed use um, development. That was a really important bill, too, which unfortunately got caught up in some politics at the end of our session and did not move forward. Hopefully we'll pass it next year. Uh, so that that was another important one. But I think we got um, most of what we uh, most of what we needed. And I also just want to emphasize, it's not just about this year over the last five or six years, the legislature has passed some quite impactful laws, including SB 35, a streamlining law that I authored, um, SB 330, um, another streamlining law by Senator Nancy Skinner, um, and a number of laws to really tighten up um, uh, ADU or in-law unit requirements. And we're already seeing uh, benefits from these laws. It doesn't happen overnight. It always takes time, um, which is uh, painful for those of us who want to see more housing yesterday. Uh, but over the last five, six years, we've been gradually improving the process. But there is a lot more work to do. So before we bring in the other uh, members of our panel here, I, I do want to ask you, I mean, you had you had some big wins, some of the, the ones that you've just discussed. Also some, you know, very tough times, like trying to get SB 50 across, Prop 13 um, has remained unreformable for some reason. I want to know, what have you learned about California housing politics since you arrived at the legislature? Um, well, what I've learned is that there's actually a lot more appetite in the legislature for reform uh, than I anticipated. Uh, so some of the bills that we passed this year, um, five years ago, those bills would have been politically impossible. Uh, and... and you know, we, I had this big bill, SB 50, a, f a few years ago that was sort of a grand slam bill in terms of overriding local zoning and allowing significantly more dense development in job 
rich areas near transit. Uh, that bill also would have been dead on arrival a few years before, and we were able to move it pretty far into the process. And what that says to me is that my colleagues get it um, all around the state. Um, more and more people get it, that people understand that the broken system we've had for the last 50 years, where basically housing is the lowest priority, everything else, um, views, parking, um, et cetera, et cetera, is more important than people having a place to live, that that system where we've made it so hard or impossible to build housing is failing California. It's spiking homelessness and poverty. It's pushing young families away or out of the state entirely, it's pushing people into long commutes. It's leading to the overcrowding in housing that we saw uh, during COVID, which was so damaging. Uh, and it just doesn't work. So I think people's minds are really opening up to saying, hey, let's shake things up here and let's make it easier to build a lot more housing. David Garcia, policy director at the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. I think the big question is, how much housing should California be building? And, you know, we talked earlier about the Governor Newsom's goals. These are huge housing numbers. Um, is that where we, sh- where we should be aiming at this point? Yeah, well, the state estimates that we should be building about 180,000 new units per year, and that's just to keep up with existing demand. And the governor and several other estimates have said we need to aim even higher than that. And so it's been really challenging to see that we can only build about 100,000 units per year. This has historically not been the case in California. If you go back a couple decades the state was routinely building you know, upwards of 200,000, sometimes even 300,000 units per year. So it's not a crazy number to think about. It just feels difficult because we're supposedly supposed to be in a, a building boom, uh, but we're only building a fraction of, of what we need. And what's the sort of consensus on what's holding back housing production? So there's several factors, but uh, one of the things is zoning, right? So we're talking about SB9 and SB10 today, and the fact that we have about two-thirds of our zone land reserved specifically for single-family-only homes significantly restricts the um, places and the amount of housing that we can build. So addressing that I think, is one of the factors. Um, another issue that uh, we, we research at the Turner Center is really the cost to build this housing, right? It's become increasingly expensive to build all forms of housing, right, from the single-family home all the way up to the large multifamily apartment complex. There's a number of reasons why this is the case. Some of it is just the market, labor, uh, lumber prices, concrete, things like this. Uh, they have been going up in recent years. Um, but also we, we in California have a lot of really important uh, policy goals that we also layer onto housing. So we have environmental uh, uh, greenhouse gas emission goals that uh, we want to ensure that our, our housing contributes to, right? We also have standards for uh, seismic. All of these things are good and we need them. We also recognize that that's why it's a little bit more expensive to be building in California than in other places. Roger. So uh, do AB9 and AB10 seem likely to actually push us closer to the goals that Governor Newsom set out and that the state itself says um, are necessary to sort of just keep up with demand? Yeah, so we did an analysis uh, specifically of Senate Bill 9 to, to really answer that question, how much housing we really expect to be built as a result of this bill. 
Uh, and we found that it's really a, a modest approach and we don't anticipate you know, significant amounts of housing to be built, at least immediately in, in the near term. So we looked at all of the 7.5 million single family parcels throughout the state and we found that only about 400,000 of those parcels could actually build new housing when you take into account the geometry of parcels and economic factors like market conditions, um, rents, home prices, and the cost to construct. So that's only about 5% of, of new parcels, of, of uh, parcels throughout the state that could build new housing as well as this bill. So it, it's not, um, you know, it is not going to solve the crisis overnight, but I do think it sets the table for increased production over the years to come. Uh, Senator Wiener, do you think those numbers are realistic? Well, um, when it comes to zoning, we need to be clear that zoning is really about planting seeds for the future. Uh, when you rezone land, uh, you know, it's largely not going to get built overnight. And so the numbers that David put out are not surprising to me. 400,000, you know, is still a significant number of new homes. And I think if you were to extend that analysis out over the years and the next few decades, it's probably a much higher uh, number. Um, it took us 50 years to dig into this hole, and it's going to take us time uh, to dig out. So when it comes to zoning, um, it is a longer-term um, strategy. And that's why we can't limit ourselves to zoning. And these process and cost reforms are so important. Uh, because there is a lot of land that we could, that is currently zoned in a way that we could build more housing on it. Um, but we have this really crazy, bizarre process where you can have land. Okay, this land is zoned for 50 units. I want to build a 50-unit project that complies with all the local rules. And it's going to take me five years to get them yeah. approved. Senator, uh, so, we're going to have to talk more about this implementation when we come back. We're talking about California's new laws around housing with Scott Wiener, California State Senator, David Ker- uh, Garcia of UC Berkeley, and Hongwei Dong of California State University, Fresno. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about California's new laws that could encourage more housing production with Scott Wiener, California State Senator representing San Francisco, David Garcia, the policy director of the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley, and Hongwei Dong, professor at California State University Fresno in the Department of Geography and City and Regional Planning. And we want to hear from you. What questions do you have about housing supply in California? And do you have thoughts on these new California housing laws. Specifically, we're talking about SB8, SB9, and SB10 today. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter. I know housing Twitter is a big thing. And Facebook, we're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. Before the break, Senator Weiner, I'm sorry, I had to cut you off when we were talking about the sort of implementation of these bills 
and uh, zoning being zoning changes being only sort of part of the solution. So just want to give you a chance to, to finish your thought. Um, yeah, I was just about done. I, I you know that we have land that is zoned for more housing. We're we're, we're making that even better with these bills, um, but it's really important to have a better process. Because um, right now you can come in and say, I want to build to exactly what your rules are, the height, the density, everything else. And uh, you can then have to go through a multi-year process that's unpredictable, expensive. Uh, maybe your building gets chopped down to below the zoning and then you get sued. And it's just, it, it, it explodes the costs. It delays the creation of housing. And we really need to move towards a more predictable process where if you check the boxes that you're complying with all the rules that have been created, you get your permit, period, end of story. And we've done that with a few laws that we've passed in the last few years, but we need to expand that dramatically. Hong Wei Dong, there's a lot of talk uh, with these bills, both by you know proponents and opponents, um, about this is ending single-family zoning. Um, but it certainly looks a little bit more complicated than that. And you've studied how this has gone in other places. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about what it's been like to actually implement these zoning change laws? Right. So I studied uh, upzoning in Portland, Oregon. Uh, my study focused on upzoning that happened before Oregon passed their uh, law to ban single-family zoning. So basically, um, I compared upzoned parcels to um, very similar parcels, but were not upzoned in Portland. Um, I found that um, upzoned parcels produced at least two times more housing in 15 years. Um, so basically, upzoning uh, helped to produce more housing units in at least two ways in Portland. One is that um, upzoning allowed developers to build more homes on the same amount of land. And the other way is to speed up development precise and encourage uh, developers to develop more on the land that was upzoned. So that's what I studied, what I found in uh, Portland, Oregon. And do you have any reason to expect that these statewide laws will have different effects than you know, a local upzoning? Right. So the, the good part of a statewide law is that um, developers stay, uh, in the entire state are uh, subject to this law. And so, so that means the cities don't compete with each other. And if you upzone only one uh, city or one area, that may uh, push development into other areas. So I think that's the good part of a statewide upzoning uh, law in Oregon, maybe also in, uh, in California. David Garcia, I want to talk a little bit about what kind of variabil- regional variability you expect. I mean, this is a Bay Area show. We have Bay Area listeners. Is this, are, are these laws going to add more housing in the Bay Area? And if so, where in the Bay Area? So we didn't find huge regional variation, which was, which was kind of surprising. Pretty much every region throughout the state will see some new housing as a result of Senate Bill 9. Uh, one of the factors that really uh, was correlated with higher rates uh, of building was parcel size, right? So in places that have smaller parcels like San Francisco, 
um, like some older communities, it's actually much harder to make these projects work simply because the parcels are really small. Um, to get to four units, you need to build two separate structures. Uh, it can be really difficult to make that work just from a, a size perspective. And so it actually works a little better in areas where you have larger parcels where it makes sense to actually build uh, up to the four units as the bill allows. Uh, we also found that there's slightly higher uptake in wealthier areas, which actually makes a lot of sense because in these areas you can command higher rent and home prices. And so the math works a little bit better there. But yeah, to, to your question, you will see uh, some building in, in the Bay Area. Uh, it won't, won't necessarily be concentrated in any one community or city, but you will see some changes um, in, in, the, uh, in the region. All right, I want to start adding in some listeners into the conversation. We've got lots of people calling in. Yael from Sebastopol, you're on with us. Hey, good morning. Um, thank you for having me on. I just I wanted to know if there's going to be sooner than later maps or how do we know if your property, you know, the single-family home on it, what does that look like, you know, if there's some acreage in a more rural area, if there's, you know, subdivision possibility or, or – like, how do we know what our home qualifies for or not? That's a great question. Senator Weiner? That's a good question because <clears throat> there are some carve-outs to the law, for example, in historic uh, districts broadly defined. I did, I did not support that exemption, but I can't learn that I can't win them all. Um, I, I think that um, it, a good place to start is to go to your local planning department and see what they think. Um, uh, but ultimately you might want to, you know, consult with a, um, you know, a, a, a professional, um, and see, you know, if, if there's a particular contractor or developer you want to work with, um, they'll have an incentive to know as well. Um, but it's probably, it'll take some time for the dust, uh, to settle, but generally it covers the whole state, uh, minus the, um, exemption that I just mentioned. Got it. Thank you, Senator Wiener. Let's um, stay with you. You know, I've, I've seen some speculation around that upzoning could lead to prices rising because it makes sort of the parcel more valuable. Are you worried at that, about that at all? And have we seen that in other places, Senator Wiener? I, I really think that that is a misguided um, argument with all respect and i'm not making it don't worry (laughs) no i know i know you're not making it you're repeating an argument that a lot of people have have made so i won't shoot the messenger don't worry um uh it's it is uh um you know the idea there's this idea out there that we have these incredibly affordable single family homes and if you upzone it to allow multiple units like townhomes or 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 whatever that it's going to make it more expensive. And if you just think about it, that doesn't withstand like a minute's worth of scrutiny. Um, single family homes, let's focus on the Bay Area, because that's where we are, are, are not inexpensive. And this whole mythology of the affordable working class single family home today in 2021 is not real anymore in, in the lion's share of the Bay Area. So big swaths of the Bay Area you're not going to get a single family home for less than a million dollars or maybe even 1.5 or $2 million. So they are incredibly expensive. And uh, sure, if you build a duplex, they're not going to be cheap. They're going to be less expensive than a single family home. And yes, combined, 
if you have two, three, four units, when you combine all of their values, it might be higher than a single family home. But for each individual family um, buying or renting one of those units, it's going to be cheaper. Uh, and so in the end, um, you know, this argument that if, if we add any more housing, it's going to make housing more expensive. I just don't think it's a valid argument. Hong Wei Dong, um, when your research up in Portland, what did you find about sort of prices uh, uh, when this kind of upzoning law took effect? Well, uh, my, my research did not uh, directly evaluate the, the price effect. My research uh, focused on the effects of upzoning on housing supply and housing development. Mm. As I said, um, is upzoning did increase housing supply. And, uh, and the, the economics 101 tells us that if the demand is, is the same or stable, and if we can increase housing supply, the housing prices will will go down a little bit. Yeah. Um, let's bring in, just need to get them selected. Let's bring in Bart from San Jose into our conversation. Hi, Bart. Hello. Hi. We have a, a little development going on here in downtown San Jose. It was pretty much rammed down our throats due to SB 35, which is, seems like very similar to 9 and 10, in that we have a 650-person housing project going up for low-income housing in what's essentially a residential neighborhood. And I was wondering if any of you could comment on that. Can I just get a look? So you're in downtown San Jose, but in a residential I'm neighborhood. Thir- I'm in east of downtown San Jose on 13th Street. It's, it's east of San Jose. It's totally residential. Scott Wiener, what do you think? I mean, this seems like uh, it may be the way the law is supposed to work. Yeah, so um, that the caller mentioned Senate Bill 35. That was actually the first bill that I introduced when I was elected to the legislature. And what it does is it provides that if a city is behind on its state required housing goals, then uh, that city will become what we call streamlined meaning that if a person or if a developer um, presents a project that complies with the local zoning, uh, then that project must be approved within a matter of months. Uh, And the biggest beneficiary of SB 35 has been affordable housing for low-income and working-class people, which is our most gaping need in California. and the, the largest nonprofit affordable housing builder in California, Bridge Housing, told me, I think it was about a year ago, that because of SB 35, their average approval time for affordable housing for low-income working-class people has gone from an average of seven years to get a project approved, if you imagine that, seven years, to four months. Uh, and so that is a game-changer when we look at the, the scale of the housing of all types and particularly affordable housing that we need. And so, um, you know, in this instance, uh, I guess the, the, the caller mentioned 650 units, that's now 650 low income working class families that will have housing that will, would not have had it otherwise. And these are the families most at risk for homelessness and they will now have housing and it, it's a residential area, but, these 650 homes are also 
residential. Residential isn't just about, you know, single family homes. It's about having places for people um, to, to live. So yes, that was the in, intent for these projects to be approved more quickly and in a streamlined way, because otherwise I can guarantee you that project would have taken years, maybe five years or more uh, to be approved. And we're in a crisis and we need that housing yesterday. Thank you for that, both Bart and Senator Weiner. Um, Steve from San Jose, welcome to the show. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Go ahead. Okay. So um, I guess part of the, the question is, is I hear no real consideration of the 39.5 million pound gorilla in the room, which is continuing overpopulation in the state. Um, I, I think compassion, want, we, we, everyone wants to see everyone in the house. But I think part of the the issues about just, you know, kind of minimizing environmental impacts is is they're big. We we have water shortage that's going to continue. There's a huge demands on open space and hillsides and creek lands and watersheds that are being targeted for development. There's agricultural preserves like Coyote Valley and South San Jose that are under constant developmental pressure. There, there's power requirements. The grid can't possibly support you know, the demands as currently configured. There's increased transformation to make, uh, transportation demands, social demands of schools, class sizes, and so I can make a long list, but, but I hear no consideration of that. I know that, that housing, more housing will help, but I mean, where's the consideration of the planning that we just can't build forever? <laughs> well, you know, Steve, so I, I, you know, I actually I do want to, I want to follow up with with you on this, which I think is, you know, where do you stop the clock, right? Because concerns about overpopulation in California go back, you know, fifty years uh, or, or longer, and at any point, could we have stopped the clock, and by what powers, you know? So I think. That, that's always a question for me when we talk about overpopulation. It's sort of like, well, who determines exactly? I know you're saying maybe there's a, a carrying capacity to the infrastructure, natural or human-made. But do you have what that number should be or what that capacity should be for the state of California in mind? Do I do? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, oh well, no. But, but, I mean, I would think that planning would ask, so what is our water availability or how is the projected use of water and the projected availability of water going to impact how many people we can have how much open space do we have less i mean there are metrics that one could apply and i would assume that the legislature and the planning departments thereof would be developing those plans you know what is the carrying capacity of california and if they aren't thinking about it they better David Garcia, thank you for that, Steve. David Garcia, Policy Director, Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. How how would you approach this question of what the sort of like right population of California may be? Yeah, so I think Steve brings up some some good points. Like there are some real uh, negative impacts that can come from um, from from d- development that is unchecked or unplanned. I think the question we face is. You know, if we were to turn off the pipeline of housing, let's say in the Bay Area, that doesn't mean that that housing doesn't get built in other places, right? That are even more environmentally uh, harmful. So I'm thinking about uh, sprawling developments in the Central Valley or even out of state, where it is proven that vehicle miles traveled is higher 
Um, energy use is higher because of the climate there, um, and water usage is actually much higher as well. Uh, and so actually building uh, more infill projects in places that have existing infrastructure close to amenities, schools, and jobs is actually the most environmentally sensitive way that we should be planning for growth. Um, and to the question of kind of infrastructure carrying capacity, I think it's important to note that when a lot of these single family communities were being built, you know, we were assuming, you know, 1.5 people per bedroom uh, or something like that to determine how big the sewer should be, the roads and whatnot. And actually the average house size, not just in California, but in the United States is going down. So we actually have excess capacity in a lot of these neighborhoods because we plan them um, to the maximum level. And so adding a couple homes here and there on a block or, or in a community is not going to necessarily overwhelm the existing infrastructure. Um, and on top of that, these projects, you know, they, they do have to pay uh, development impact fees, right? So if you need to um, up, uh, upsize uh, the sewer lateral, um, if you need to um, increase the um, you know, and any sort of infrastructure capacity. Uh, technically, the, the developer, yeah. the homeowner, is supposed to pay into that, um, and and that's uh, that's on the planning department in, in each city and the public works department to understand what they need to be charging in order to make sure that they don't uh, have so much development that it overwhelms your infrastructure and their amenities. We're talking about California's new housing laws with David Garcia, policy director at the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. Scott Weiner, California State Senator representing San Francisco. Hong Wei Dong, a professor, Cal State University, Fresno. And we do want to hear from you. What's a bigger change you'd like to see in how California housing works? If you live in a single family home and want to build a unit on your property, what hurdles are you facing? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I think you know it's my first pledge drive, given that, <laughs> how much I love saying $10 Tuesdays. But really, go donate to the station. It's an amazing place. We're talking about California's new housing laws with Scott Weiner, California state senator representing San Francisco, who's been introducing a lot of housing bills in his tenure up in Sacramento. David Garcia, policy director with the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. And Hongwei Dong, a professor at California State University, Fresno, in the Department of Geography and City and Regional Planning. Have some comments from listeners coming in, so I want to read a few of those. Susan writes, I was not in favor of the bills for a number of reasons. There was little respect for the value of community, existing neighborhoods, also the occupancy rates in all of the Berkeley buildings along Shattuck and San Pablo is not at a max. The luxury of building four units on a single home lot will more than likely create $4 million condos, not affordable housing. Dan, uh, on the same topic-ish, the main reason for the housing crisis is that people cannot afford the price of housing. Wiener et al. can talk about upzoning all they want, but developers claim they must charge $4,000 a unit for projects to barely pencil out, and medium family renter income in Oakland is $40,000 per year, less than $4,000 per month. Wiener's 
there's some quotes here. Wiener's quote-unquote solutions might affect the housing quote-unquote crisis for tech SF workers, but has nothing to do with the housing crises facing substantial parts of the population. And despite his rhetoric, nothing to do with housing for low-income families, let alone the homeless. Senator Wiener, I'd love you to respond to that. And just to line it up, David Garcia, I also want to come back to you on the costs, housing construction costs, because... Um, they are extremely high, and I think people don't quite understand that. Uh, Senator Weiner. Yeah, well, it's really interesting. I'm glad the listeners have gotten to – I welcome you to my world. Um, that at the same time, you have someone saying, oh, you're not doing anything to promote housing for you know low-income working-class people. When 10 or 15 minutes ago, we had a gentleman call in and criticize a law that I wrote that um, streamlined – 650 low-income housing units in his community in San Jose. So I, I think this whole notion that we're, we're trying to build housing only for rich people is just straight-up false. Um, the bills that we have passed are having real and tangible impacts in building housing for low-income people, um, as well as market-rate housing. Um, and we also need to, I think, really deeply understand that you can't just look at a project here or a project there and say, okay, this project got built down the street for me and it's really expensive. So therefore don't build any new housing because it's all expensive. We have spent 50 years creating a completely unnecessary housing shortage by making it impossible to build much housing. We're short millions of homes. So as you start clawing your way out of that multi-million home shortage, yes, the first you know, the, the first 100,000 or 300,000 homes that you're building are going to be expensive because there's a shortage. And the way that you make it not expensive is by building enough volume of new homes that we cool off this market and make it less um, explosive and over the top. So the idea that the first homes that are being built um, under a new pro-housing policy need to be cheap. That's just not the reality of the market. Um, and, and I think people, you know, need to be, you know, and I hate to ask people to be patient because this is a long-term project to try to um, get the car out of the ditch. David Garcia, what do you say to people who sort of object to the, the market frame in general? And say, yeah, you know, I, earlier we heard, you know, kind of Economics 101 says, you know, if there's more housing supply, then uh, then the prices will come down. Um, but some people sort of reject that frame entirely and say, like, well, that's actually not the problem. There's it's, it's much more complex than that. Housing that goes, you know, they'll sometimes call it um, like trickle down housing economics that like um, that building housing for the rich will not actually make um, housing less expensive for people further down the socioeconomic ladder. Like, what do we? What do you make of the sort of overall rejection of the market frame? And um, does that hold up to the evidence that we have about the way that housing works in California? Yeah, that's a really great question and one that um, we we grapple with a lot uh, because intuitively, when you see a new home that's built um, and it is it is very expensive, only attainable to let's say the the top. Uh, quarter of, of households uh, in, in a region, uh, it doesn't feel like we're doing anything immediately for uh, the broader housing affordability challenges. Uh, that being said, all of the evidence we have does does show us that at a region-wide level, adding more housing supply does help stabilize costs. So there, there is consensus there, and there's emerging 
literature that shows us that even at the neighborhood level, when you add more units, uh, it also helps to stabilize costs as well. I don't think there's a total consensus on that yet, but the most literature we have coming out on this topic really uh, speaks to this issue of adding more supply to help uh, stabilize rents and affordability and not unintentionally increasing rents somehow. We just don't see very much evidence of that um, and in the data itself. Um, one, one thing I want to note, too, is this idea of, um, I think I, I've heard it referred to as a trickle-down housing, and I don't, don't think that's a fair characterization um, because housing markets uh, actually respond immediately, right? And there is some uh, new research that shows us that in places where you are able to um, add new supply, that the, infect, the, the effects down market, uh, let's say in older buildings, are immediate. So you actually do open up more affordability further down the income spectrum as you add supply at the top level too. Uh, so, so there is some evidence that shows us that, that that is the case, but I understand that that doesn't really feel intuitive when you look at new supply and you see that that's very expensive. One thing I want to note specifically on SB9 is that it only allows for units to be built up to 800 square feet um, before cities can impose restrictions on the size of the home. And so those are really small units, right? So they're probably not going to be deed restricted affordable, right? Um, but they are uh, likely to be you know, more attainable to greater numbers of households simply because they are, they are just smaller homes. That's maybe a two bedroom home that's being built, um, but probably in a neighborhood where homes are being sold for $1.5 million. Hong Wei Dong, I wanted to give you a chance to weigh in on affordability. Right. In in your uh, research, in, not just in Portland, but you know your overall research program, like how do you see both like supply and affordability working together? Right. So what so what we we have talked about is about uh, housing supply. Actually, upzoning can help improve home affordability in multiple ways. In addition to uh, increasing housing supply. By upzoning single family neighborhoods, we allow people to build um, more housing taps. So that will increase housing diversity and housing options. So even though a, let's say a 1,000 square feet uh, duplex unit is still not very cheap, but it is definitely cheaper than a 2,000 square feet single family home in the same neighborhood. So mm-hmm. by allowing by upzoning an uh, a single family neighborhood, we are providing more housing options and new options to people who want to live in that neighborhood, but they uh, they just cannot afford living in that neighborhood at this point because the only option they have at this point is a single family home. So increasing housing supply and increasing housing options and diversity can work together to improve uh, home affordability. Thank you for that. Let's bring in Dan from Oakland with a question about SB9. Hi. Yeah, thank you for this uh, topic and and bringing all these people together. Great show. Um, My question really has to do with uh, more rather than building new housing, but taking existing housing stock. And, um, you know, there was a previous law for ADUs where you could add an ADU on a unit that finally made its way through Oakland after they got sued and they basically are now letting ADUs be done. But on the question of like, if I have a house, let's say in Oakland, it's really site constrained. It's maybe a 3000 square foot house or 2,500 square foot house. Am I allowed now to split that into a duplex? I mean, cause that could add a lot of housing stock. I mean, thinking of areas like Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they allow 
older houses to be split into duplexes and fourplexes and then sell them off as condos, you know. So I, that just uh, talking because that can be a much cheaper way to me and faster than, um, you know, a, a brand new development or having to scrape an existing house and uh, start from right. scratch. Kind of uh, like the okay. end run around the uh, construction cost problem. Uh, Senator Wiener? Senator Wiener, you there? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. No problem. Uh, yeah, I think you, you can. The answer is yes, you can. Um, there are, um, depending on the way a home has been built and the way the plumbing is, et cetera, um, it could be, in some situations, it, caught, it could be very expensive uh, to do that. In other situations, it might be much more cost effective. So it's going to depend on as I understand that how that home was built, particularly around um, the plumbing and uh, the plumbing in particular. Um, but yes, it is permissible under the law. Yeah. Um, so one thing comment. to add there. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I just want to add one thing is that uh, Dan is right. that The duplex provision of Senate Bill 9 uh, is actually, uh, per our model and our analysis, probably the most financially advantageous route for most homeowners to take. I think everyone's um, focused on this uh, lot split provision and the construction of brand new units, but that, that is a complex and costly process. Uh, our model shows that converting the existing home into a duplex is actually going to make the most sense most of the time. Yeah. I mean, I think half of the houses on my block in Oakland are already that kind of duplex. I mean, this was quite common in the past, yeah? Uh, yeah, so yeah. If you go into um, a I, I live in uh, Rockbridge. You wouldn't know that it, today you can only build single-family homes because so many of uh, of the structures there are already, you know, small-scale apartments or duplexes. Uh, I, I live in a, a fourplex myself. So, um, but these are things that we you go to older neighborhoods were, were quite common, but were essentially banned um, in the 70s and 80s through a series of, of downzoning. Um, yeah. But now could potentially be legal again. I want to read one uh, comment from Kyler, which we're going to get to just after a short pledge break. Um, Kyler writes, isn't the main issue that homeowners are strongly incentivized to oppose any new housing because it makes their most valuable asset, their home, more scarce and therefore more valuable? I'm not making any moral judgment. That is simply how the incentives are set up, and homeowners have much more political power than renters. How does this plan address homeowner opposition, considering how much power homeowners and local governments have? And we are going to talk about that after a quick pledge break. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Coming back, um, Senator Weiner, how do you get homeowners on board? Kyler's point about just the incentive structure of American capitalism, which is having so much wealth tied up in people's homes, like we're kind of working against the basic structure of the system, are we not? Uh, Senator Weiner? Yes. Yeah. Um, apologies. Um well, I mean, I think with with homeowners, it's it's a little complicated because you know you have people saying that homeowners that, that their homes are going to be less they're going to lose value if you if you allow multi unit in a neighborhood, which I, I've never seen any evidence of that. And as you just mentioned, they 
if you have fewer single family homes, they're going to become more valuable. So I think single family homeowners in the bulk of the Bay Area are going to be fine no matter what the system is. Um, and I, I actually find that the opposition from, and I think it's a minority of single family homeowners. I think they're a very loud, vocal, organized minority that people mistakenly view as a majority. Uh, their opposition tends to be less about the value of their home and more about, I want to live in only with single family homes. And that's what I decided that I decided to live in this community. I don't want multi-unit. And they, ultim- they often have stereotypes about who lives in multi-unit. And so it's more about the quote unquote character of the neighborhood and less about home values. That's my experience. Well, let, me, let me follow up on this. We'll try ask it a slightly different way. Can we solve the California housing crisis without pushing home prices down? I, I think it's more about stabilizing the prices so they don't continue to explode. Uh, and and I, I, don't, I don't think it's in anyone's interest to like tank the real estate market. That, that's not going to be helpful over the long run. But I think it's about slowing down and ultimately stabilizing prices um, <clears throat> over time. Uh, and it's, it's not going to be a magic light switch where you turn it on and all of a sudden rents are cut in half and we're back to 1974 levels. That's not going to happen. David Garcia, how about you? I mean, you direct a center dedicated to housing innovation. I have to be honest, I think to me, it still feels like we're, we're, we're starting to get at some of the key things, zoning, but we're still kind of around the edges. Do we need a paradigm shift in the way that housing works? Uh, yeah, I think we do. Um, but that depends on, on the topic you're looking at, right? So on one hand, we talk about this construction cost issue. Uh, we can make changes around the edges to improve the cost, uh, but really we need to think about how we even uh, create housing. Uh, we've been building housing the same way for uh, 100 years. Uh, there's a great potential in doing things like modular off-site construction that can significantly Significantly bring down the overall cost to build these homes. That can play a huge role too. Um, but we also and is that finally about- working? I know that's been like a long-held dream, but it seems yeah. like Factory OS and other places are actually getting those things mm-hmm. built. They are. So I, I think what you've seen is um, a lot of interest in these types of development um, um, uh, innovations, right? And it's not just. Um, a, a flashy thing anymore. I think there's now projects on the ground that prove you can do this. Um, I know I know Patrio specifically has uh, has started expanding, um, and, and I think there was an article in the New York Times just recently about how they're starting to turn away work, market rate work, because they're doing so much work on, say, the affordable housing side, um, which is also important, right? Because um, I also want to point out when we talk about these zoning bills and how there's no affordability provisions. Um, we should also point out that in addition to things like Senate Bill 9, Senate Bill 10, the legislature and the governor passed, I think, $22 billion, which is a historic sum of money, specifically for affordable housing and homeless housing and services. So these are um, one-time dollars for sure, uh, but to the extent we can um, cut down on cost and build more with the scarce resources we have, that's going to be really important to do or deed-restricted affordable housing alongside things like zoning reform. These are things we should all be doing at once. Yeah. Is there like one, I know I, I know in this world people always say, you know, hey, there's no silver bullet. But if you could make one major change, you know, one kind of upstream change, 
What what would it be? David Garcia. Um, sure. If I could, uh, yeah, if I could make one major change. Like, I understand um, it's a package. I understand it's all these, but like, yeah, people out there really want, like. I would have built a lot of homes. I would have built a lot of homes 30 years ago. I think that's (laughs) the change uh, I would have made that we would not be in this, in this situation if if that were the case. Right. Um, but yeah, I hate to be cliche, but there, there really is no silver bullet. We've, we've done an analysis on potential for building on underutilized mall sites on now single family homes no one policy change is really going to make up for that gigantic housing deficit. It really does need to be a multi-faceted approach. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, one, one thing I will say if, if, if I were to make this easier is, is just to make the process by which housing gets built much more clear and easy, which is something, you know, Senate Bill 35 um, has been really helpful with. Um, if we could have similar tools for a larger um, types of development, I think that would be helpful that would work. too. Okay. We've been talking about California's new laws to encourage more housing production with Scott Weiner, California State Senator representing San Francisco, David Garcia, who you just heard, Policy Director of the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley, and Hongwei Dong, a professor at California State University, Fresno, in the Department of Geography and City and Regional Planning. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.